You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season whether i was out west during my elk hunt south dakota mule deer hunt or my rut vacation in iowa i was on my phone using onyx maps every part of the day whether i was looking at terrain features uh on the topographic and and satellite maps that they offer on their uh Uh, on their app or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location I used Onyx Maps every single day and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map. And uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before. I had to wait till sunup and then and then you know find it that way. But that problem does not exist anymore because of onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that i think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So, onyxmaps.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to the Land of Legs podcast. And Adam here once again. A um, little bit of a uh, uh, Adam overwhelming uh, part this week because it's just me. And, and actually, I've got Chad coming back on for this podcast as well. Um, we recorded over on the other podcast this week. We talked uh, about edge feathering, devoted the entire podcast on the benefits of it and all things edge feathering. Um, we kind of touched on this topic that we're going to cover in this podcast um, that's been brewing for some time. Um, I've mentioned it. I've quoted it. I've, I've 
said kind of little bits and tidbits of it on past podcasts, but we're going to devote the whole podcast to this um, for for a lot of reasons why. This is kind of me going to get on my soapbox. So I guess uh, <laughs> before I jump in, Chad, thanks for coming back on. You got anything you want to kick us off with? Not really. Not not yet, anyway. So we've got a lot of stuff waiting to come out in this podcast. Yeah, and and you know this is one of those podcasts where I'm like, uh, I think people can know by now that there's times where I'll get on a soapbox and and flat go rant for a while. But um, this one's been brewing for some time because I don't know. There's a lot of we- things I, I do not like. I, I feel like, you know, there's a there's probably a lot of things that people um see and kinda witness with our with our podcast that we we try to be different, we strive to be different. Um and we we have from the very beginning of I guess since the first launch of the podcast, um there's a there's a lot of different things we do that we try to make sure that we're being different and and, and one of those is just sometimes too honest might be something that somebody might say about us and uh i'm gonna be probably a little too honest in this podcast and and one of those things is i don't like the direction of of the uh land management um specifically whitetail focused land management um advice being given out there um which has been i guess great for our business uh (laughs) but uh (laughs) I think there's there's just a lot of things, there's a lot of trends, there's a lot of fads that I do not like, and I feel like for our job in land consulting and real estate, we devote a lot of time to debunking those rather than trying to get a lot of the great information out there. Um, and so, but I guess this, that is what it is. One of those, to me, this is one of those that, if they haven't realized it by now, we're discussing these topics all the time away from the podcast oh yeah these are the kind of and this is this podcast topic has been one that's a common topic amongst us while we're running chainsaws i mean when we're doing habitat work or when we're hunting this is one of those things we discuss a lot and how disgusted we are with some of it yeah for sure and it's just it's just one of those things that as the okay if we're talking land management, we strive to really put out information. So I think if you notice, a lot of the videos we do um, don't really have endorsements in them. Um, as far as a lot of the information given isn't about this product. And I think this fall alone, some of the videos we did um like where it was devoted to just one product it was a product that we don't really even have a relationship with that company it's just a it's just a product that we like and we hope that other people will use it because it works and it's a good bang for your buck it's it you can just we can justify the expense um and that's really the foundation or one of the parts of the foundation for us is trying to find ways for people to improve their habitat and enjoy their outdoor experience and uh, with the direction of land management, it seems like t- 2020 now, it seems like we've really come a long way where whitetail land management is endorse whatever product you can to make money. Um, and 
and some of the if well the best land management tools for your wildlife and for your land are going to be something that'd be very hard to push a product on you uh, whether that be edge feathering um, prescribed fire uh, timber stand improvement old field management um, all those things um, grassland management there's a lot of things that it's really hard to find a product and so if you find a <laughs> if you find a land management service that's doing more of pushing product then that's where I feel like we've gone astray it's no longer about it's no longer about the land management it's no longer about the habitat it's more about money and and so that's that's a bad thing that I hate and I don't talk about it a lot but since we're might as well might as well on this pod cause, podcast cuz this one might be this one might be removed from Sportsman's Nation <laughs> with, the, with the amount of complaints that might come in but who knows um so guys at that note if you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet please head over to Land and Legacy and leave us a leave us a review uh we'd love we by now, I know this is not going to come to a shock to a lot of guys who are here week after week. They've heard tidbits. They know it. They've seen it. Um, we're just putting it all into one podcast this week. So if you haven't left us a review, that's one great way to help support us, as well as apparel and um, any other thing on our store at shoplandandlegacy.com. Um, so, man. A lot of problems arising, but one of the biggest things that we're finding and seeing more and more is must-kill management and the rise of stress levels within people carrying the must-kill management mentality. Um, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous mindset, um, and it's and it's growing to a point where. I feel well. There's a reason. It's growing to a point where so much that we've seen it that we're we're devoting an entire podcast to it. If that tells you anything. You can get on social media, check out YouTube, and you'll see some. And you may be wondering what must kill management mentality looks like. Um, we're going to give plenty of examples. Um, must kill management is is really kind of in one definition I would use to describe it, and I don't. I don't know who. I don't know if anybody's coined this phrase. Maybe we have, but um, must kill management is stepping away from understanding nature's natural cycles and looking at it from a almost as if the land is a way for you to reign over everything and make it your own little garden of Eden without actually understanding the purpose of all of it and how it is all tied together. And one of my things that I wanted to talk about, I meant to say pre-show, was, Chad, I'm afraid that when I get on this soapbox, by the end of this, you may have had three <laughs> lines. You're going to have to chime in because I may get going and be talking for 30 minutes straight. I'll, I'll cut in on you when I think I need to. <laughs> so I think one of the best things, one of the best quotes, and, and I I mean, man, he's the the – the guy who started it all with land with wildlife management, Aldo Leopold, he said it best with harmony with land. And, and uh, so his quote is, Harmony with land is like harmony with a friend. You cannot cherish his right hand and chop off his left. That is to say, you cannot love game and hate predators. 
the land is one organism. And I just think, oh, I just think that is so refreshing to read um, and to say and to think about. Um, and it's really kind of a lot of uh, a lot of guys who are conservationists or self-proclaimed conservationists and hunters even will quote Leopold a lot. But then it's like it's I I hate to say it, but it's kind of like sometimes we we read bits from the Bible and we use that one, but we don't read the whole thing. And it's like you'll we read things it, about take the things completely out of context. Yeah, and and I I don't know that that phrase right there, harmony with land, is such a a deep but big statement. It kind of summarizes a whole lot of of his work. Um, and understanding that, you know, this is a, nature and land is a really complex, it's a really complex um, system it, that I'm not sure we'll ever understand in a, it, it in seems, a we'll never you, completely understand it this side of heaven, I don't think. And it seems like we're losing sight of it more and more. Oh, for like sure. If you, if you look at, like social media. It's we've lost sight of the fact that there are more things involved in an ecosystem besides our deer and turkey and then coyotes, bobcats, coons, possums, skunks. No, absolutely. I think one of the, you know, you can use a couple examples and say that I see a lot of with social media groups that we're involved in that aren't hunting related. They're more plant and uh, natural landscape related. You see a lot of people post about implementing prescribed fire and then another person posts and says i can't believe you're doing that you're you're hurting the birds birds are really struggling right now and it's like the in the united states the bird group if you will that's struggling the most are grassland birds and grasslands require fire and it's like you don't realize that the very species you're concerned about you're you you're trying to withdraw the very thing that's most important to them, and it's just uh, it's mind blowing. It's it's we're so far removed of understanding we, all the we delicacies. Almost, it's almost and, like we lose. I mean, you, I think it's required to use this term on the on every podcast, but we lose sense of the diversity that actually occurs in nature. Yes, I saw I saw a post today on monarchs and the milkweed craze yep and they were saying don't forget that they also need our flowering nectar plants yeah and everyone is on the craze of i've got to get milkweed everywhere but they forget that monarchs and all our other pollinators require all these uh flowering plant species not just milkweed they mentioned goldenrod as being a great one. And then right on the comments, I'm going to plant goldenrod in my garden now. And it's like, it's not one plant as a savior. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what's the number one thing you can do for deer? Well, don't ask me stupid questions. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because that's, that's a question that there's not one thing you can do for deer. There's a lot of things you should do for deer. There's a lot of things they require and uh, there's a lot of things they require that that uh, probably don't have a product related to them. So you're going to have to dig around to find what to do for them. Um, it's a complex ecosystem. That's right. And 
to sum it all up, it's it's a it's a diverse ecosystem, and if a native species is there, it probably has a reason to be there. Um, now, before before I get the emails and the questions about, okay, well, eastern red cedar is a native. Yes, it is. And I might as well address it early in in the podcast because I talk so much about cutting cedars. Eastern red cedar is a native, yes. But it is not a native that was strung out across the landscape like it is now pre-settlement. When, and, and we can even go back to whatever year, let's just say pre-settlement, um, when it was a very different landscape than we have now. The landscape was managed with fire and grazing. Yes, Native Americans set fires, but there was also lightning strike fires. There was enough fires to help control the eastern red cedars to where they weren't spread out across the landscape. And I'm saying that based on journals to where they never hardly talked about them. And then when they did see them, they documented it in their journals because it was such a rarity. Um, not, I guess rarity isn't the right word, but they weren't very common spread out across the landscape like native grasses and wildflowers and different trees, depending on where you're at. So yes, eastern red cedar is a native. No, it was not in the capacity that it is now. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a very big problem, especially in grassland ecosystems. And, uh, and even forest woodland ecosystems, it's a huge problem that's not being addressed. Um, and so, yes, it is a native, but um, we're talking our management is replicating nature and, and getting the natural disturbances back on the land to create a diverse ecosystem. So that's the difference. Um, you know, when we're talking about the connection, it all comes down to like there's a lot of native species, plants, animals, and they all provide different benefits. Just like you said with the monarch butterfly, there are certain things that it needs throughout the year. Same thing with the white-tailed deer. It needs it, remove supplemental feeding, food plots, minerals, all that stuff that we brought into it in the last 20 years. White-tailed deer were still around long before those were ever put in a bag with a buck on it and put on a shelf. Um, and they survived off diversity. And I, I think people forget that the reason that that deer became so rare was not the fact that we didn't have food plots everywhere and we didn't have that. It was market hunting. Yeah, market hunting destroyed game populations. <laughs> they um, didn't depend on us putting stuff out for them. They, yeah. They flourished before we killed them out. Now, yes, they had pro- likely bigger ranges, and they were more of a herd-type move around to different food sources during different times of the year. And that's where I think a lot of times people, we get into going, well, I need the food plots to make sure they don't leave. Okay, I'm not arguing. We love food plots. We plant food plots. But we don't let our food plots take away from... If there is one old field on the farm, we don't take that old field away to plant a food plot we would find another way to put a food plot or make a small food plot or somehow figure out a way to make an old field somewhere else. I think a lot of times, as we'll talk later in this podcast, we take away a lot to, to add. Uh, we take a great thing away to make an okay thing there. 
Um, and, and that's, that's where some of the biggest problems have, have arise with, with me. So, um, yeah, Chad, you ready to, uh, oh, one thing I wanted to talk about before that was historically there was lots of animals, but we also had die-offs. Like if we had severe winters or we had major droughts, populations were knocked back. Um, and if you think about it from a big picture, populations were knocked back to where the very strongest survived. And then it was up to those very strong few to repopulate. So those very strong genetics were then passed on to the next generation. So over time, through this big picture view of things, populations got stronger because genetics from the strong were passed on. And uh, it's, it's sometimes we look at this our lifespan and we say, okay, this is, this is long, but man, we're talking about years and years and years and years of animals adapting and changing and becoming stronger. So well, this is, your food plots I mean, aren't changing that. <laughs> when, when you learn in even elementary school, when you learn about the food chain and the, eco, I mean, basic elements of ecosystems, you learn that the predator-prey, it's a cycle. Yeah. As the prey goes up, the predators follow and they knock that down and then the predators their numbers drop and it's they just follow each other yep that's right and uh so anyway let's jump into some examples one of the big ones that i see and these aren't ranked out in the most common they're just as they came to us but one of the big ones you see is soybeans or clover food plots any non-native species being planted in an area and then landowner hunter whoever must kill the weeds that are coming up in that food plot and a lot of times those weeds will be ragweed horseweed or mare's tail whichever one you call it um, various sedges could be jewelweed could be pokeweed all of these native species who are native to this area, to that specific farm, are now a problem in your food plot, and you must kill them. You have a non-native food plot seed planted, and you're trying to remove native species out of them. Um, and sometimes, sometimes the food plots are planted that offer a very limited time period of benefit. Yeah, I mean, you see it even in like you see a rush in the summer of people to plant brassicas. Yeah, they'll even plant them like sugar beets. You know, you're supposed to plant them like early, early summer, late spring. And you you hear questions, how do I kill weeds in this? And it's like, well, what do you expect? <laughs> yeah, you've, you've planted that, and it has very little benefit all through that time. You've planted it purely to kill a deer in it. Yeah, and and that's kind of some of the biggest problems with must kill management is it's it's a very one mind one track mind focused uh, on one species and it can. At what point do you step away from being a conservationist and become just a, well, uh, a times, selfish person? It also it can also backfire in terms of you know Lady Cutoff 
our I don't know that you ever mentioned the name of it in the podcast, but it's our our food plot that we that we planted that we didn't spray this year. Yeah. Like we we decided we weren't going to spray. We just drilled right into our our fall mix from the previous year and just let it grow. And we got pretty dry at a time. Our soybeans kind of suffered a little from how dry it was because we that's been very limited. We haven't built up an organic matter layer in there. And, and it's just what, naturally a, a poor what, soil because that's the Ozarks. What did we see having the most browse pressure in that food plot? The weeds. The ragweed. Ragweed and horse tail. and horseweed or mare's tail were browse like crazy. It's, because it's it's glyphosate tolerant. I don't know what to do with it. You just cut out and on they, me, but um, yeah, it, it, those they, weeds. By the way, Chad's traveling down the road right now. He's calling in on this podcast. But mares tail, they lose their minds because it's glyphosate tolerant and don't know how to kill it in their in their food plots. When the deer just hammered the mares tail in our food plot this year. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, if you're in a part of the country where Mare's tail is very um, resistant to glyphosate, so I'm talking specifically crop country, and you have a plethora of it. Yeah, you probably won't see the amount of browse because they can be browsing quite a bit, but there's still a lot more, uh, a lot more stems that you won't see it on. But at the same time, when you're planting these, these let's just say a soybean monoculture, it's really beneficial to a select few species but overall, it's not beneficial to a lot of the native species. But if you add in, a, if you compare that with a diverse old field or grassland, it's very beneficial to a whole long list of species. And so, not to say that food plots are bad, we plant them ourselves. But be aware of what you're doing when you're when you're doing this. So, like a lot of times, I see. Understand, I should say, understand where's a good place to put a food plot and where's a uh, a place to put a food plot that would be more harmful than good, uh, where you're taking things away from your wildlife rather than um, being keeping it in a productive state or making it more productive by more old field management. Um, and so that's a big one. I see it so much um, yeah. where the, you see – I, how many times you get on social media and you see like a a 10-foot strip way back through the woods that's like, and it's deep-tilled, and they might have green growth on it from for a few months out of the year, and then it's just it's competing with the oaks and you don't have anything. Like there's no brambles. You've removed the brambles. you remove removed the herbaceous plants all for that little window that it's attractive during deer season. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one of them. Another I one I see. From, from Go ahead. That, I get to me the natural the natural step to the next one would be going after your native animals. Yes. In those in those same non-native food plots. That's right. Uh, so you you plant a food plot which is really a highly attractive, very palatable food source for most of the year, uh, or for not most of the year, for a lot of the time that it's growing. Uh, and you have species like groundhogs or rabbits or even squirrels digging up the seed or or out there eating young plants on it um, 
or or eating the grain from your corn or soybeans and you get mad and and it's like all out pursuit i must kill must kill my groundhogs they're eating my food plots or i must kill the rabbits they're eating young well, soybeans a lot of times a lot of times the groundhogs are there because you dozed your food plots into the woods and you've got big dozer decks all along the timber line that's right that's right and, uh, and you wonder why the groundhogs are there or or you see a, a farm that's got high groundhog numbers and that's a farm that's also been trapped religiously for years and years and years. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you have high numbers of groundhogs because you've removed bobcats and coyotes who are going to be predating on those groundhogs. Um, Would be the same for rabbits. Or rabbits, yeah. And so it's it's a very, it's not humorous, but sometimes it kind of is because it's like you're not seeing it. Like if you buy a vehicle. You don't try to focus on what seat covers you're going to put on before you understand if, let's say you're buying a used vehicle, before you understand that test drive that vehicle and know that the engine's good and, and it sounds good and it and it's a working vehicle rather than focus on the seat covers. It's like people a lot of times focus on the food plots or they focus on the, the ground blinds or the screens and the habitat's horrible. And it's like you're never going to get what you want because you're not focused on the habitat, and uh, it kind of it kind of comes down to a. Uh, I actually had a conversation just a couple of days ago about this. It's it doesn't matter how high of education you have. Sometimes you have zero common sense, and it it affects every the way you look at everything. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much education you have. If you have no common sense, sometimes it just everything blows. You, right you got to have a a very you got to look at the land. So my advice to you is if you're looking at land uh, from a deer with deer goggles on, you're going to miss some of the biggest factors that make it all work together. Um, and if you're looking at it and you're kind of focused on the one benefit or the, the one species that you're trying to benefit, and you do everything you can to benefit that one species, you're going to throw your habitat out of, out of balance. You're going to throw predator-prey species out of balance. Um, you're going to mess things up a lot. And that's why we encourage can, all of you, you to have... Up, you go, can end up negative, negatively affecting the one species that you're trying to manage for. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know one thing, when we talked about this, food plots... Uh, and native species eating it and being upset with it. Another big one too is, is uh, because a lot of us love deer. That's a big part of why we do what we do. Um, but finding ways, to, so you do something for a deer, but then you turn around and make it to where it's only available to that deer during hunting season. And I'm talking specifically about fencing out food plots to keep deer away. We don't do that. There was a time, um, but we do <laughs> not do that. In a, in a, in a, yeah, we do not do that anymore on our farms. And I'll tell you exactly why. It feels selfish of me to plant something or take take an area away from the wildlife, specifically the deer, to then only make it available to them when I can try to hunt them. 
um, it kind of it 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 breaks away from my principles and my foundation of land management, and I can't do it. Not to say I'm downgrading any of you that use fences. Um, they are somewhat effective. I would argue that they take a lot of time, and uh, <laughs> usually you end up having deer get over anyway. Um, and I, I can honestly say I'm not sure. I have seen one. One or two hunts Seth Harker had um, successful on using a fence, but I don't. I've seen lots of fences put up over the years, and I've not seen people like open up the open up the side of it and let deer pour in. They end up shooting a nice a nice buck coming in, um, and so fencing and, out and food plots is not is is part of the must kill management. Sometimes to me, it's it's almost it's almost to the point of. Because a lot of times it, the reason you're having to fence it off is because you don't have enough food throughout your habitat or you have too many deer. Mm-hmm. So in essence, you are starving your deer so that you can kill them better. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to just, I mean, in that point, should we even focus on any habitat at all and just try to kill some deer? Make yeah. it easier so I don't have to work as hard to kill one. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like, I, I I think it's like it's becoming an anthem, which is great. In in the in the anti-hunting hunting community, there needs to be guys really proud of their roots of being a hunter, and and we are with ours as well. But it's becoming almost an anthem that we're all conservationists and um, practices like this that must kill management is not. I would be don't be doing this and then telling me it's conservation. I mean, it's like, don't, don't pull the wool over my eyes. I know what you're doing. I know what it's for. You're just trying to make it. It's fine. If you tell me that it's, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm trying to kill uh, a certain buck or I'm really focused on wanting to kill a Boone and Crockett buck. Okay. That's, that's a whole nother debate, but don't be telling me all this stuff that you're doing it for conservation um what is it you told me that one time don't pee on me and tell me that it's rain um (laughs) it's like this is this is hunting strategies food plots are hunting strategies they're nothing more than than just some sort of hunting strategy whether it's planting milo strips for upland birds um that can get a little bit in the we can we can say we're trying to lower stress levels and provide food during a during a certain time of the year that's as far into that as I will go. The rest of it, I'll say it's 100% or 70% for your hunting strategies. Anyway, another one. So we've gone through food plots and killing weeds and killing animals that are de- eating our food plots because it's not, it's almost like, it'd be almost like running into the kitchen when your mom's cooking dinner and start to eat before, before, uh, dinner is is ready it's like that's what the deer are doing but instead of slapping their hands or telling them get out of the kitchen um it's like we're we're now mad at deer i didn't tell you you could eat my food plot yet i'm gonna put a fence around it that'll fix it (laughs) (laughs) another one that really bothers me is uh killing out highly productive old fields to plant mediocre food plots um specifically you see this one you see this one constantly oh this this one makes my heart hurt Knowing how productive old fields are for a plethora of, of native species, um, it's it's very it's very disheartening to see 
a really diverse field of goldenrod and native native grasses and forbs and shrubs to be grinded out or bush hogged out or sprayed out um, and to be planted in a single species food plot. Um, it's generally <clears throat> it's generally like a winter wheat. Oh yes, yes, and a winter wheat or a turnips or, turnips. or so you're taking a you're taking a an area of your farm that is uh, currently in the old field in the old field condition providing uh, benefits for almost all year, and you're taking it out to plant a species that's. It's beneficial almost all year to a long list of native species, both small game up to big game, and you're planting then a monoculture of um, whatever food plot blend. It could be purple top turnips or wheat or whatever it is, and you plant that entire area in that, and you say, and it's only going to be beneficial to uh, to two species or three species, and then it's like, oh. Land management's conservation. Well, when it's like that, it's not. The the only time that I like that is if you're in a place you have a lot more old field and native stuff and you've done strips in it to thin a rank stand of native grass. That's right. And you've, you've planted in or, say, disc strips for fire lines and you plant them in, in a cool season grain. So yep. Anything like that is good because then the, they're more than likely going to let it grow up in annual weeds like ragweed. Yep. Or another time I would be okay with it and I, I've i even recommended this and I'm actually working on a recommendation of it right now is when the old field is infested with a non-native invasive like Cerisa lespedeza. And the only way you can get that back is the temporary two-year fix of planting it in crops and spraying out the Cerise Lespedeza and then going back into a high-diverse mix. Um, And and that's – or just letting it grow back into into the weeds. Um, But that's – those are the times. I don't like seeing old fields, diverse old fields for that matter, being turned into monoculture food plots. Um, generally the practice we're talking about in the musk kill management is they've got an old field and that's the only area of that that they have and that's why they've keyed in on that to plant a food plot yeah yeah it's i've got that two acre field back there that's kind of grown up i'm gonna i'm gonna go till it under yeah plant it to winter wheat and turnips yeah next one supplemental feeding i see this one a lot and i know you do too chad but Feeding deer, but also attracting predators. How many times do you see, and I'm talking to our listeners, how many times do you see a social media post of a a feeder and and a complaint about the amount of predators coming to that feeder? Like, that's not, (laughs) that's not their fault that they're at your, you're, you're giving an easy meal for a deer and, a predator's taking advantage of it. Let's say raccoons or even coyotes. You'll see coyotes coming to feeders a lot too. Um, and and it's almost like at what point do we have to remind ourselves that 
what we're doing is not only helping when we're doing it to say we're quote helping the deer through the winter understand well, and know that that food source availability is also helping the predators through the winter you can well, help the deer through the winter by cutting timber stand improvement or edge feather and giving food through woody browse and not be feeding nest predators if you will or feeding predators um, a lot it's of like times you also see this you you see the statement on helping deer through the winter in a place where it might get in the teens in the winter. Yep. It doesn't get that cold. And you look in the background and it's closed canopy timber and leaves underneath. Yeah. And they're like, I'm helping the deer get through the winter. And it's like, you realize your habitat is terrible behind there. Yeah. You could help like, them with a chainsaw too. Yeah. That's right. And so that's one of those things to me that is just a, Another great reminder that, you know, just because ju- just because you've seen this happen, you would think that by 2020 we could look back and say, okay, you know what, let's, let's, let's take the board, erase everything again, let's get back to the basics. We know that they need diversity. We know they need woody browse, herbaceous plants, native grass mixed in. It's also beneficial to all these other species. Let's just do that. Well, but it's, it's like the... I'm sure I'm sure you've seen it. The post of the the bobcat that's way up in the air jumping on a turkey on a feeder. Oh Have yeah, you seen it? I it think so. It's bobcat, and it's like all these com- all these complaints about they need to kill bobcats, and it's like well, you've created a predator sink where all those prey are going to that corn feeder. Of course, a predator is not stupid. Yeah, it realizes how much activity is around that, and it's yeah. waiting on them. Yeah. For sure. So keep in mind, supplemental feeding is something that can be, (laughs) don't be surprised when you see predators show up and don't be upset that there's predators there because you're attracting them to the site just like you're attracting the prey species there. All right, you ready for keep moving? Let's keep going. All right, killing out timber units to plant non-native species. I think I mentioned that earlier, but like, uh, or maybe I didn't. Killing native trees, so like I see this some where people go in and they're cutting out. I see this a lot more on the kind of like small scale where you don't have something to take the root wads out, so you're cutting a bunch of trees with a chainsaw and piling them up and burning them and doing all this work, and you create this half acre to acre opening that's got stumps out in it, but then you turn around and you plant Chinese chestnuts or sawtooth oaks or even a non-native food plot variety mixed with these trees. And it's like you just took away all this non-native stuff to – or took away all this native stuff to plant all these non-native stuff that we're not even sure they're going to thrive here. For the most part, you're probably going to have to do additional amendments, maybe do some pruning, maybe doing some cages to allow these to survive when you could have just cut the trees – and created this micro clear cut and it been way more beneficial. To that even you see it with planting fruit trees. Yep. And you see you see people through the summer working nonstop to keep those trees alive. They're fencing them, they're they're watering them, they're fertilizing them. Everything you think of the expense and the out the hours that they're spending just to keep those things alive for a very short time. That's right. And they're gonna drop fruit 
during one month of the year when you could make a <laughs> just a clear cut and those stump sprouts are going to be browsed throughout the entire growing season and then into the dormant season. It's just, yeah. uh, whew, it's a tough world we live in. Yeah, well, I think I sent a, I think I sent a, uh, a picture to Matt since Matt's not here on either one of these podcasts this week. I'll, I'll say a quote of his, I think it was his, I sent him a picture of, I won't even tell you what the picture was, but I saw it on social media and he goes, what a time to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) And it was about just like, this is, this is the world we live in. This is what we're, this is what we deal with. So, um, yeah. So another one, next one, trying to kill all nest predators, fawn nabbers, fawn killers, all the words they use or phrases they use, um, working endlessly to trap predators, whether that be from skunks to possums to raccoons to foxes to coyotes and bobcats. They're trying to remove as many as possible. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, they would probably say, well, I'm not going to get all of them. But if given the option to push the button, if they were if there was two buttons in front of them, they could say remove all predators or not not mess with the predators. I would bet if you gave that poll on a outdoor social media land management page, if you gave that two options, they would punch the remove all predators. And yeah. well, I mean, I've seen it on social media many times of the people that rank predator management very very high on a habitat manager's mindset yeah. on their toolbox it's like that's that's a key part to habitat management mm-hmm. and you wonder how i wonder well you were talking about wondering how many of them would push that button i wonder how many of them would keep trapping if you showed them statistics on how effective their trapping was with them having an open mind to it, how many of them would continue to do it? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know people that like, like Frank and Kyle, they just enjoy it. Yep. They like trapping, but I, I don't know how many of these people, I think a lot of people enjoy trapping, but then there are a percentage of them that are doing it solely because they think they're helping. That's right. And for our listeners, when we use these examples, we're not really talking, we're not talking about you guys because if you're hanging on with us this long, you realize that there's a group out there in the social media world that we are talking about. It's not you guys. <laughs> um, but we're giving you this information to hopefully empower you and inspire you to go out into the world and shine the light on true conservation um, land management. Um, our, goal, our goal in this talking is, is not to condemn. It's hopefully to wisen people up to actually try to go out and make a significant difference in habitat. That's right. I'm on at the end of our lives, we get to look back and say, were we a, which side of history do we want to be on? Do we want to be on the side that actually made a difference or do we want to be a side that was part of the problem? And I want to be on the side that made a difference and I don't want to be part of the problem and must kill management is part of the problem. Um, Next one. Oh, so we're still on killing all nest predators. And so we're doing all this thinking we're making this huge difference, but it's limited success. 
the improvement to the landscape may be very small, if not even harmful, for the predator-prey relationships. Um, and all this is likely happening while po- the habitat is poor. It's like, ah, and, you're taking and one of the best times to put habitat on the ground during the winter, and we're focusing it on a thing that's not – we're focusing on trying to remove a native species. I don't, And I don't think people step back and, and realize that it's very unsustainable. The yes. impact that you make in one year is gone. By next. <laughs> yeah. By the next year. Yes, I mean, you could run a chainsaw for the amount of time. If you were to take the amount of time that if you were if you trapped every year, bless your heart if you've stuck with us all the way through this forty-minute podcast so far, and you are a devoted trapper and you believe wholeheartedly in its benefits. Bless you. Um, if you were to take okay and track the amount of time that you've devoted every year to trapping. And let's say next year you said, okay, I'm not doing it. All I'm going to do is run a chainsaw. I'm going to edge feather. I'm going to put in these bedding thickets. I'm going to TSI my timber. I'm going to dormant season disc some of my rank native grass fields. I'm going to control invasive species, whatever it is. You just take that time away from predator trapping and you devote it into habitat management. You will see significantly more benefits from habitat management than you would trapping. For years to come, you could go back to those areas five and ten years and probably even 15 years later and look and see the difference you made. You would not get that through predator trapping. And and we, I don't know that we've actually touched on it yet. Speaking of predators, I already think I know reading your mind, but speaking of predators, at the same time you see I need to trap predators... But then a lot of places in the country are dealing with too high of deer numbers. And they're eating your food plots. They're eating the native vegetation. Uh, they're being overbrowsed. And we're wanting to devote time to killing predators, which are actually seeking out and trying to remove the the very species that you're trying to remove? Is that where you're going? No, actually, oh. I was going a different direction. Oh, gotcha. I was going to talk about the, the species of, like, nest predators that we can't even control the numbers of, that a lot of our predators that we are controlling control. Let's hear like you. snakes. Oh, yeah. Like snakes. And, and some of our, even some of the bird species. I mean, you hear crows being nest raiders. Yep. I mean, there's so many species out there that are native species that we can't legally control the population. That That's right. Some of those species are actually controlled by skunks, coons, possums, coyotes, bobcats. Those species actually prey on these other species. That's right. So I don't think you talk about removing all of those. It, if our goal is to remove all of those predators, I don't think we realize the effect that that would have. Way more snakes, way more. Oh, yeah, could you it, imagine it, the mice and rats in people's houses? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think people think of these things. Yeah, it's it's an ecosystem. 
That's right. There's many other species that are there. Or I, mean, I read an article not too long ago about the, and I may mention on podcast. So if if I did and I forgot, uh, excuse me, um, my apologies. But it was talking about how uh, in the in the suburbs of Chicago, basically. So you've got Chicago, and they're looking at they're monitoring the native bird species, um, and how those species were declining rapidly with the amount of feral cats. Yes, I saw an And then whenever the coyotes cats. moved into Chicago, they're noticing a great, great increases in the native bird species because those coyotes are predating on feral cats. Can you remember You'll get the them, number? Coyotes. Can you remember the number? That they say domestic cats of our of our native birds, how many species, how many, what number that is? No, it's like it's, in the millions, or it's like hundreds of millions. It's a huge number of native birds that domestic and feral cats kill every year. Yeah, it's uh, something crazy. Yeah, it's billions, is what I'm seeing. Yeah, feral yeah, cats kill billions of small critters each year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a bad bad problem. Must kill management. Kill <laughs> kill predators. And uh it's just like, oh my gosh. So you go into killing k- killing deer. You're overpopulated with deer and you're trying to kill them all uh, or not kill them all. You're trying to knock them back. So it's like, well, I need to kill 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 deer this year. It's like, oh, well that that's a whole nother problem, but if the same time you're trying to kill predators, you're wasting time. Let them help you while you're doing it. Um, and and yeah. frankly, predators don't prey. You don't see them. They don't regularly chase healthy deer and and are successful. They usually predate on weak deer. It could be deer that weak has a hurt foot or fawns, or, or or for that matter, deer that we have injured, deer that we've taken a poor shot on. Yeah. Or even even had a good shot on, and they run over and die, and then we're we're mad that the coyotes chew them up. Yeah, <laughs> like they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They found a weak or dead animal, and they ate it. Yeah, that's just that's just the game we play. Yeah. Um. So must kill management, land ownership. Uh, so we're kind of wrapping up a lot of our examples now, but land ownership is. And working on the so if you own the land or you you're out there working on your on your granddad's land or your uncle's land, it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be stressful. When it becomes stressful, we're not focused on the big picture of what this really is. This is God's creation, and it's everywhere you look in nature you can see His delicate design, and. I think that's why must-kill management to me is a, is a problem because it gets keyed in on managing the land for big bucks or managing the land for one species, and we really forget how amazing it is every time we step outside and we get to breathe in the fresh air and the beauty of God's creation and go, wow, he created all this and he let me live in it. I mean, that's amazing. It's not supposed to be stressful. No, and we get we get so focused on in must kill. We get so focused on, say, in November, I've got to kill that big buck. I've got to kill that big buck. Yeah. 
and you sit in the tree stand the whole time and fret and worry on why you're not killing that deer. And in the meantime, you've got a flock of ducks flying over you. Or four trumpeter swans, and you're trying to figure out what that sound is. Or or you're in there, and you're going, you hear a pack of coyotes start howling. You're like, oh, I'm going to kill those in a week. When trapping season's opened up, I'm going to get them. And yeah. you almost or get in this. That they're that they're killing your big buck. Yeah, that's you right. Quote your big buck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very complex, very high detail world, and that's the natural world we're referring to. And it should not be stressful. And so this podcast is trying to open up our minds and open up our understanding of land and go. And you I- know what? Maybe I really. I've been looking at this all wrong, and and we're we're bringing this to you because we were once there. That's what I was just getting ready to say. If if they've made it through this podcast to this point, it's we're you've kind of said the podcast for years that it's all from experience and trying to save people going through the hassles that we went through. Yeah, and we've spent years in this very spot of fretting over all of this. That's right. And it's it's a whole lot more it's a whole lot more peaceful in tree stand and doing that when when you're sitting there looking at the trees you want to cut the next in the next week when bow season's over. That's right. Or you know, we saw we saw several coyotes this fall. Uh, I actually shot at one. Um but it wasn't like a psalm and was instantly mad. It was kind of like, man, I, I, the one I shot at was like, man, I'd like to have that pelt. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's not a, oh, i got to kill it. I think must kill management needs to kill itself um, <laughs> because it's a, it's, a, it's a very bad, very sad, very depressing life uh, of, of being a land manager. Just going to go back through some of those. So you've got soybeans or clover. You've got non-native food plots, and you're trying to kill native species out of it. Um, you've got both food. Plant, both plant and animal. Both plant and animal, yep. Um, you're Yeah, you're trying to kill small game or non-target animals out of your food plot because they're eating your food plots. Um, well, you took his field away of natives, so now he's eating your food plot. So. Whose whose place is it really? Um, you're killing highly productive old fields to plant mediocre food plots. Must kill old fields to plant food plots. Must kill groundhogs in my food plots. Must kill ragweed out of my soybeans, uh, or ragweed out of my clover. Um, must kill predators because they're showing up at my supplemental feeders, and and they're I'm getting too many pictures of predators. Um, must kill predators. That's just that's just a, a given one. Uh, must kill predators every chance I get. Um, must kill does to knock my population back into um, a balanced a balanced ratio. Must kill wow. native trees to plant um, non-native trees. And must keep out. Or I guess must kill deer that are eating food plots or must keep out deer that are coming into my food plots and eating the f- eating the food plot during the wrong time of the year. Um, yeah. I think uh, trying to bring in non-native species 
Um, to me, it's like one thing that really bothers me is non-native species being brought in under the belief that they have to be there to make this successful. It's almost like saying the way God designed it wasn't perfect in itself. Um, it's like think, the landscape think, isn't perfect. The landscape isn't perfect until you got there to introduce that non-native species. I think it leads to another podcast called Must Plant. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have enough time to cover that one, but... Um, it's kind of a long story. Yeah. We'll, we'll cover that one another day. Yeah, most of the problems we listed before can be simply fixed with a better understanding of nature, uh, better understanding of the ecosystems and all the connections. Um, and as, as, all, as Leopold said it best, the harmony of land um, and the fact that land is one organism. Um, so we're looking and going, think, what the sometimes... habitat looked like before we settled this land? Um, that's what we're trying to replicate because that's when uh, there was a high diversity of species that were living in harmony. Um, there was predator and prey relationships. Um, and so everything that we try to do with our land management philosophies here at Land and Legacy is try to replicate the way nature was um, with with natural disturbance and high diversity to where you have year-round benefits to your wildlife. So we improve the habitat to replicate nature um <laughs> not planting miscanthus to, um, to me to me it's one of those if if you listen to this podcast and actually uh, have questions about it and wonder about it next time you're thinking of looking at a hunting show or watching something like that in the modern hunting industry go and study some of like healthy ecosystem look at aldo leopold leopold look at other things like that instead and research some of that thing some of that into like healthy ecosystems and yeah. how they work that's right per, and one of the big things and we'll end on this um well two things a, a lot of this comes to the wanting instant results so you plant miscanthus and two years later it's 12 foot tall woohoo um you didn't do anything for habitat you actually took ground away from what could be great habitat uh, planting sawtooth oaks. Uh, so you've got non-natives that you're planting that are now starting to invade some woodlots and show signs that maybe they're not as um, not aggressive as we thought. Um, instant results with food plots. You disc it up, you plant it, and it's green in two months. Uh, and then, of course, hinge cuts, um, which is a little bit uh, some habitat management because we are providing, taking a native species and we're just changing the way it looks um but it's it's ultimately kind of damn it's it's damaging to the species um or to that individual tree so instant results is kind of the big problem not just with land management but in society in general um and then we will end on this chad you got anything you want to add to wrap this up That's, no so I'm perfect good. ecosystems don't happen overnight um it is a process and by golly, look around in life. The best things take time. Um, anything that's that's cheap or instant is usually or free or anything like that is probably not worth having. Um, hard work, perseverance, and 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 getting what you getting your work rewarded is is a big part of this land management. And uh, 
you're going to see far more superior results if you focus on the habitat, you focus on the natural cycle, and you just look back and enjoy land for what it is, and you don't try to create it into something that it's not. Guys, we appreciate you coming on, Chad, once again. Thanks for joining me. And Anytime. we will catch you guys next week. Yeah. <laughs>